the philosophy of psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 32. Affect and Individual Differences. Okay, this kind of really intrigues me, the whole notion of um, differences in emotional intensity, because... um, I do think it's, it's, it's probably one of the first markers that you have of individual differences. For instance, uh, and this is a source of enormous difficulty for me in my life, because I have the most horribly sensitive sense of smell. Like, you know, if, you just, if you're wearing a, a degree of fragrance that just feels fine to you, I'll be going, oh, you know, get me out of here, kind of thing. You know? And one of my best friends wears patchouli oil, like she showers in it, you know. And I'm always like holding my breath slightly because I love her so much. But you know, so she she tones it down when she comes to see me. So in other words, things like smell, you can't really help that. It's like you either really respond to it or you don't notice it at all, right? So that's a, a really important dose response format to sort of think through. In other words, not everybody's going to respond to the same dose of something in the same way. If you want to get the same amount of reaction that you'd get out of me with three drops of fragrance out of another person, you might have to use 20 drops of fragrance to get the same kind of look of horror and retreat from them. Okay. So, in other words, different strokes for different folks, different stimuli to get the same level of response. And particularly with things like emotions like disgust, for instance, one of the things that Dick Stevenson in our department does for Trevor Cape and men and things, is that they're really fascinated by uh, the sensitivity of people's uh, capacity for, for smell and taste and the strength of their responses to that and what that means. And they've actually just recently discovered, I saw online, that psychopathic individuals are massively impaired in their sense of smell. That was very reassuring to me. I thought, at least I'm not likely to be a psychopath. Okay. That's good, I thought. That's a good thing. With smells and tastes, it's quite easy to work out the psychophysical thresholds, how much you need of something to get a particular response. But other modalities, it's much, much more difficult. Um, Yeah, so pictures seem to be what we use a lot. And thank goodness there is this thing called the IAPS, and I'm telling you this for honest reasons if you're interested, because all you have to do is fill out a form, get your supervisor to sign it, send it off, and they'll give you limited access to this international affective picture system. And a lot of the work is done for you. So if you're an honest student, you're in easy street, because all of the images have been coded for how intense an emotion they're portraying and the valence of that emotion. And they also have pictures that are in all of that two-dimensional space, if you know what I mean. Envy from Doris, this does not mean that affects are only valence and arousal, but that you can reliably map them in terms of valence and arousal. That doesn't mean that that's all that there is to them. Okay. But it does look from the research that I've been reading as though there are lawful individual differences in terms of how much approach you've got and how much avoidance you've got. But, and I didn't know this until I discovered Davidson, and I'm still not sure I really get understand this, is apparently there are two subtypes of positive affect within our approach system. One is 
that kind of appetitive drive like I'm out to get something, that pre-goal state where you're looking for something in the world. But then the other positive aspect is that kind of satiated contentment when, you know, you scored a goal, <laughs> you know, or you wrote your essay, it's over, or your thesis is handed in. And I think what fascinates me is if I look among my friends, I have friends who never let themselves have that moment of contentment. They're on to the next thing straight away. They shift the goalposts on themselves. Oh, yes, I got an A+. Plus, but now I want to get two A-pluses in the same time on double the number of subjects while sweeping the floor with the broom or something like that. You know, it's like they're always going to have more and more goals. And I think if you're interested in things like recovery rate from stress or dropping in, in cortisol levels, my hunch would be that post-goal contentment would be where I would look. Because people that don't let themselves rest after achievement, who are constantly driving themselves, are going to sort of induce, I think, a lot more wear and tear on the body, even if they're psychologically habituated to it. So they may think, this is just the way I am, but the body is still going to be registering the stresses and, and difficulties of that. So they don't allow themselves that post-goal attainment of positive affect or contentment. And I just think that's the most amazing image I would have. Okay. So, it's a balancing act, basically. Um, to balance between that appetitive search and rescue kind of positive affect and the post-goal attainment. And Davidson says, although this was probably 2009, so three years old now, I haven't done an up updated search, but apparently that hasn't received systematic study. Those two different forms of affect. So that's, that would be something that would be quite doable if you're interested. And that's um, one of my friends. Isn't that amazing? Dancing on stilts on sandstone rock and looking elegant at the same time. Just, I think that's very nice. That's a balancing act. Okay. I just want to put pictures in, basically. I'll find the excuses. Okay. So this is, this is the one where Davidson makes me think of, you know, people like Herman Munster with you know, brain bulges, but you mustn't think like that because it's not actually that there is morphological differences. It's at the level of intensity of electrophysical, uh, electrophysiological activity that you get that asymmetry. So you might have a lot more um, electrophysiological activity in your left frontal part of your brain, in which case you're going to be high on positive affect, or you might have the um, intense and extreme activity on the right frontal part, and in that case you're going to be high on negative activity. And so what he did was, he said, is this tray-like? Look, if I measure people across different situations using different measures to get at their electrophysiological activity, is it consistent? You know, can I say this person is a left frontal type, or this person is a right frontal type? And he actually found Gondak alphas that are completely research-respectable. Anything over 0.65, you can work with, basically. It's not great. You'd rather have 0.75, but it's enough. And he discovered, using an fMRI, that it's functional. That is, it's how the brain is firing. It's not structural. It's not that there's a different structure in the brain or a different shape to the structure of, of the brain. So he's been tracing in his work the sorts of features, what goes with what. So if you're left 
asymmetric, you'll have more positive affect and more behavioural activation. If you're right asymmetric, you'll have more negative affect and you'll have less behavioural activation relative to your behavioural inhibition. I'm so sorry you haven't got handouts, but this is making it harder work for you today. That'll teach. Then, what I love is he just zooms through the self-report questionnaire. See how beautifully multimodal this is? It's not just relying on self-report. It's actually measuring things that aren't within your capacity consciously to control, as well as things like the panis, which you could cheat on if you wanted to, which is just the positive affect, negative affect scale by um, Telegin and Clark, which is a little beauty of the scale. It works every time for me. And also you can measure the bass and bis using... Um, a scale that's been based on Gray's way of dividing up that, those concepts, which traces right back to Pavlov. You can also uh, link differences in prefrontal asymmetry uh, to how much emotion and what kinds of emotion you elicit when you watch film clips. And this was actually quite niftily done because they actually control for your baseline level of emotion. So they're really giving themselves a tough task. In other words, they're partially out removing the effect of how high or low your emotion was when you came in, or what emotional state you were in when you came in. So they're using you as your own control, in a sense, and looking at the kind of time course and intensity of the emotion that the film clips arouse in you. So he's really staying true to his own model, Davidson. He then, true to his own model, has a look at how you recover. How long does it take you to come out of that affective state following um, emotional challenge? So, very nice way of thinking of emotion. And then, just for the cherry on top, um, he says, and this prefrontal asymmetry is systematically linked to differences in natural killer cells. These are your immune system cells. Um, and he's found that right frontally activated subjects, that is, people that have dispositionally high negative affect have got lower levels of natural killer activity compared to those who are higher in positive affect. But you can sort of see, this could be quite a pressure. Like imagine you've got breast cancer and someone says, you know, grin or dark, basically. And you're like, well, you know, I don't really feel very happy today. I feel miserable because I just got really bad news. It's like there'd be part of you that wouldn't want to have to fake positive affect. You know, you want real positive affect, which means probably you have to face the negative feelings and find a way of transforming them, rather than just pretending that you're in a negative affect, uh, that you're not in a negative affect state. So you want to be a true reflector, rather than an avoider, and then telling a socially desirable fibs about your emotional state. Okay, positive psychology. This is Dr. C. Chixon Mahani. I can't say it to save myself. Okay. Seligman and Csikszentmihalyi suggest that good mental health is more than simply the absence of illness. And this was the beginning of positive psychology. It was around the 2000s that I first noticed it as well. And it was kind of like Abraham Maslow coming back onto the scene for me in a way. Because he was the guy that said, you know, life is not just about deficiency needs like food and shelter and a mate. It's also about being so the D needs, the deficiency needs, will contrast to the B needs or the B needs. And so they're wanting to look at what leads to a more satisfying, richer sort of existence. 
And they're suggesting that this kind of life and this kind of personal growth is linked to positive traits. And these are the kinds of things that, that um, I think are quite interesting in assessing, if you can. Courage. I know that sounds like an old-fashioned notion, but it's actually being able to, to face the challenge of something, being able to take it on rather than avoid it. Perseverance is almost like a temperament variable, but it's like, can you make yourself persist and carry on, even through adversity? Optimistic thinking concerning the future, I think if that arises naturally, it has quite a good effect. But I think if you try to impose that upon yourself, it can make you a stranger to yourself. It can mean that you don't really know your own emotional state. You've just been told to think optimistically. I think high levels of engagement, of really being prepared to you know, keep going, to, to get involved and facing up to challenges, that's one of the ones that seems to come through in the work that I've been looking at recently on mental toughness and resilience. Um, and also satisfaction with the past. That was something I was really trying to bring home to you last week. That if you can face the past, know it deeply, know it at a sensory and emotionally rich autobiographical level, that's actually going to take you forward into the future in, in a better way than if you try to avoid remembering it. Now, mental toughness, despite the fact that I don't like the label, I don't know why I don't like the label, I just don't like it. Um, I think because it makes me think of people that say, get over it, and suck it up, and man up, and things like that. And they're not my favourite phrases, because I don't think they serve us well. I think they make us um, feel ashamed for feeling certain effects of emotion. And feeling ashamed about the emotions you're having doesn't make them go away. It just means you have these rather awkward, nested emotion bundles that can be more trouble than they're worth, basically. So I'm, you can tell I'm a bit worried by this notion of mental toughness. And when I get that kind of worry, I tend to do research on it, basically, which is what I'm doing now, trying to take the whole concept apart. So Cluck reported that mentally tough athletes are highly competitive, but they've also got this sort of agency They've got this high level of self-belief, you know, that can-do attitude. They've got an unshakable faith that they can control their own destiny. So they sometimes overtrain, you know. And sometimes I think overtraining is because they're actually using physical training to manage their feelings. And so they end up with all sorts of difficulties with their musculature and their spines and their joints because they're using physical exercise where mental exercise might be useful for them. So that's what we're looking at. Um, but these individuals do seem to remain relatively unaffected by competition and adversity. They can handle it if someone's sledging. You all know what sledging means, do you? Anybody not know what it means? It's where people say, oh, you guys and women can tell me about this. Is it, is it where they say derogatory things about you to try and put you off focusing on the task at hand, so that you get all caught up in feeling insulted and put down. Is that right? Is that a fair definition of sledging for anybody that knows? With the small nods around, good. Okay, so sledging is where the, the game is not really happening on the field. It's a bit of a mental game as well, and they can put you um, off your stride. Okay, so that sounds very much like agency to me, and it takes me back to 1970s. I'm sorry to do things like this to you, but 
I must have paid attention as a student because all I could think of was um, Kobasa, basically, who did this wonderful research in 1978 and 79, and she defined hardiness as commitment, control, and challenge. And mental toughness seems perhaps to me like you know, old wine and new bottles. And I'll tell you why. When I had a little look at what mental toughness entailed, it started to look very like um, hardiness. It's about coping effectively with pressure and adversity. It's about recovering or rebounding, bouncing back from setbacks and failures. It's persevering, hanging in there. It's also being insensitive, which is interesting, not noticing minor stimuli or resilient. And then it's that whole sort of, I am the greatest self-belief control and I've got superior concentration and mental skill. So it's a, it's a real sort of, it's a kind of mental eliteness in a sense that you can, you can withstand more than the average human being. And that's what you believe about yourself, basically. An allied concept is flow. And flow is really misunderstood in a lot of the literatures that I read. Um, I think I was really obsessed by flow when it first came out because I've always been a bit interested in people that are drawn to slightly mystical experiences, I suppose. And flow is definitely that notion where you lose all sense of yourself. One of my friends was a, a competitor, competitive motorcyclist in New Zealand and he actually lost one of his eyes when he was four years old in a boating accident. So he only had one eye that could see it all. And and yet, he, he would be going at these astonishing speeds on a, a Ducati, you know. And if he lost attention, you know, given that restricted depth vision that he would have had, it would have been disastrous. So he had to focus and concentrate so hard on the external world that he lost all sense of himself, he said. And it was, it was as if he didn't exist, even though he was obviously very skilled and processing you know, quite complex environmental stimuli in a very intelligent way. So it struck me as a kind of paradox that there was this total loss of a sense of self. At the same time, you had this incredibly skilled performance going on and this incredibly high level of engagement. It's not like you're coursing. It's not like, oh, this is really easy and well within my skill range. He was right at the limits of what he could do and he was staying right up at the limits of what he was capable of achieving. So quite fascinating for me. So it's an intrinsically motivating experience. You want to find experiences that give you that experience. And the reason it's got a bit of a bad name in psychology, it's seen as a bit sort of fruity or something, is because it's an altered state. <laughs> and I think it is a really altered state if you've ever experienced it. Um, and the crucial thing is that the world has got to be taking every ounce of skill that we've got. If it's not, you won't be in flow. You'll be cruising. It'll be easy for you. So it's got to actually be taking you right to the upper limits of your skill capacity. And yet, be a positive experience. Now, my downhill ski runs are not flow. Because, you know, I ski way beyond my talent, way beyond my talent. I go on slopes I shouldn't go near, you know. But if it's not flow, I'm going, I'm still alive, I'm still alive, this is amazing, I'm still alive. You know, that's not really to be recommended because my skill's a bit short of it and I'm 
you're just on the edge of terror, basically, rather than in flow. But flow is where it's like, oh yes, I, I can do this, but it's requiring a lot of me. And Chiksin Mahan initially said there were nine dimensions back in 1990, but some researchers in sport have actually tried to operationalize them. By that I mean uh, devise items that reliably measure the nine different subscales. And so that one about the balance between challenge and skill that wipes me out from being able to have flow as a skier anyway, I might be able to get it in other domains, is crucial. That merging of action and awareness is important because there's the loss of that self-reflective awareness. You're still aware, but your awareness is totally focused on the action in the world. You're not really thinking consciously about yourself or the fact that you're doing this skill well at a particular moment. It's usually that there are clear goals, that there's very unambiguous feedback, total concentration on the task because you don't have enough working memory to have working memory going elsewhere. The task is requiring all of that. And I think that's part of what makes you enjoy it so much because you're, all of your working memory is in the present moment. Um, but there's a sense of control. There's a loss of that self-consciousness because you haven't got the self-reflective awareness. There's no sense of the passage of time. And you see it with really great chess players. They come out of an hour-long game. They're exhausted. They're hungry. But it's as if time has not passed at all. There's a transcendence of time. And that sort of autotelic experience, I can't remember how they defined that. I think it means I don't really understand it. Okay, it's very difficult to grasp. I'll see if I can find it for you next week, but I've forgotten how they defined it. It's something about... No, can't remember. Okay, predictors of flow. This is where remember hardiness, commitment, control, and challenge, the three Cs as I call them. Confidence is a big predictor of flow, that kind of belief that you can do it, but so is commitment and challenge. Challenge is when if something's demanded of you, you don't freak out and go, I can't do that. You go, yes, I will rise to this occasion. I'm going to give it my best shot. Commitment, I'm really going to give it everything I've got. I'm going to engage with it. I'm not going to hold back at all. Control is in there as one of the largest correlations, and that challenge skill balance is one of the largest correlations. So you can, you can take flow apart, but not all of the nine dimensions seem to be equally present. So kind of interesting stuff. But as much as mental toughness might be about that kind of agency, I can do anything, totally self-reliant, I'm an elite sports person, I can do anything, I'm also really fascinated by the elements of flow that evoke what I did my research on very early on, which is called absorption. It's one of Alkitelligan's subscales of the MPQ. I think it's about a 15-item scale, and it's a little beauty. We've, we've been using it this last year. And absorption is where you lose agency altogether. It's a little bit like, I think, the phenomenology of flow. When you're in the moment of flow, you've got no sense of agency. You may recollect yourself in a different way, but at that moment, it's like you don't exist. And that's what absorption is like. Um, Buckley and Gallanter do research on new religious movements, and they were very interested in the phenomenon of mystical states. And they describe that phenomenon in a way that I think captures the essence of absorption. 
it's a kind of a state that you go into. But if you are an absorptive personality, you go into that state very regularly. That's what it means. You're just predisposed to have absorptive states, and anything will trigger it. So it might be cloud patterns, might be crackling patterns in, a, in an open fire. It might just be music or something that you get completely caught up in and lost. Okay. So sometimes they're quite poetic states, but sometimes it's quite confusional because the crucial thing about absorption is there's this diffusion of ego boundaries. You don't notice that you still exist separately from the object of perception any longer. And or that you don't feel yourself to be different from the person that you are in human intimacy. And they call it this crepuscular moment of awareness. Crepuscular means like that twilight between light and dark, um, where you come to sense your, your place in the natural order of things. Or you start to sort of realize, you know, like it, with the Fukushima disaster, when I was reading about that for some writing I was doing, I started to realize that that megawave that took out Fukushima was one of many such megawaves. That's, that we have historical records back from 869, that they happen every 800 to 1,100 years. So in that time frame, those poor people in the Sendai Plain, whoever they were, or whatever generation they were, they would have these waves crashing in over and displacing their, their, their lives, their houses, you know, etc. So you sort of, you know, that sort of tendency to be able to be aware of yourself and the continuity of things, of, of time before and after your existence, or the continuity of life forms when you feel how miraculous it is when you see um, fossils, for instance, or you know discoveries that they, as I've discovered recently, they've found trapped in amber the feathers that dinosaurs had, these kind of weird little camera-like feathers and dinosaurs. You know, with things like that, produce an absorptive response of your your sense in the place of things. So you can see how that can be quite mystical and spiritual for some people, but not for me, because I haven't really got, you know, I've got that absorptive style, but I'm not really very mystical. I'm a bit too sciencey to, to quite go there, if you know what I mean. Okay. But at the re a person's tendency to have a reduced sense of separateness from the objects of perception. So it's a sense of fusion with what you're perceiving. And it certainly characterizes meditative and mystical states. The interesting thing for me is that I did my honours thesis on synesthesia and I did my PhD thesis on absorption and it was fascinating for me to discover that part and parcel of absorption is that the separateness of your sensory modalities breaks down as well. That's what synesthesia is. And a really common example is if you're listening to a beautiful track of music, you've often got like a video in your mind, you've got visual images. Or sometimes, you know, the crackle of the fire can actually produce, um, you know, quite strong uh, perceptual sensations that are beyond what you're actually seeing. Or, uh, you know, when you're listening to a melody and it's almost like you can see a play of colours. Lots of people have these synesthetic experiences. And if you don't have them, you're probably thinking, I've just gone slightly mad. <laughs> what on earth am I talking about? But for those who've got them, it's got... Yes, that's me. You know, like no one's ever asked me those questions before. So what absorption means is that, you know, when you're watching a play or a movie and you get so caught up in it that you start do dodging the bullets, 
or ducking if something's happening on screen, right? You're absorbed. You've lost the sense of as if. You've completely gone into the scene as if not. You get so lost in what you're, you're viewing that you're sheltering from the cellular politics. Now, what I'm interested about it is I initially thought that absorption might measure a person's tendency to seek out spiritual leaders and gurus and that kind of stuff. And it doesn't really seem to predict your willingness to submit yourself to authority. You're prepared to submit yourself to the environment and the world. You're prepared to see yourself as quite a small feature of existence. But it's not at all, in, on my um, research, it's not at all the same thing as submitting to authority. So it's got some slight correlation with hypnotic tendencies, but about 0.27. So it's not the same thing as being hypnotically susceptible to it. I just want to sort of show you um, this little thing before, and then I've got a few slides and then we're off today. Um, but this was the uh, piece of research that I did on new religious movements. And I'll just talk you through this very primitive <laughs> graph generated by Unix computers Okay, in those days. Okay, so what I did was I had two control groups. I had a student control group, which is control S. That would be people like you, two years younger. Yeah? You can see they're quite high on absorption, but they're not rocketing. The general control group were the general public. I literally walked the streets and knocked on doors. Do you know my questionnaires, please? You know? So the control group, they're very, very low in absorption. The new religious movement with the W is a Pentecostal religious group that would only let me have access to existing members. They wouldn't let me get access to new people that had just joined the group because they thought my questionnaires were threatening and challenging. Fair enough. I was happy to get access to anybody. So the, the Western, the new religious movement, Western group, is about on par with the general control group. Because I was interested in people that were seeking change in their lives, I had a therapy group in there as kind of an active control. And then these other ones, with all the E's, NRME, those are the Eastern groups who have a kind of, you know, an Eastern worldview rather than believing in Jesus and God and all that sort of stuff, they would believe in um, either Buddhism or Hinduism. Um, and so there was the community of living waters in the Blue Mountains. There was the Satchamatta Ashram, okay, so Wiseman's Therese. And there was Shana the Rising Light, which was a cult group from down in Melbourne. And if you look at it, all three of those Eastern new religious movements were through the roof on an absorptive style. So that was very satisfying to me that it looked like this variable was picking up people that were drawn uh, to worldviews that embrace and endorse a sort of more mystical um, approach to that sense of union with the divine. Okay. Now, last thing for today, and I can't really do justice to this paper because I've only just read it, but I think it's a really neat way to think, and so um, I'm just going to sort of introduce you to it very lightly, and then we're heading off. Okay, so one of the things that evolutionary theory suggests is that organisms who are plastic have an adaptive advantage. In other words, 
The less that's hardwired into me, the more that my responses are plastic and open to being shaped by the environment in which I find myself, the better I'm going to be able to adapt to the environment in which I find myself. So for me to be differentially susceptible means that I'm open to both the pluses, and I learn quickly from good things, and the minuses, and I learn quickly from negative things. They have a big impact on me. But these guys, the second author's plus, can't remember the first author, have got a new model. It's a 2012 paper, and it's just out. And they talk about vantage sensitivity. In other words, they're saying, we all, in psychology, have accidentally got obsessed with things that damage, damage us, if you like. So we all know about the diathesis stress model. What factors make me more vulnerable when stress hurts? Okay, and that's what we're interested in. But this is kind of like, well, what about the diathesis flourishing model? What about people that are much more open to and responsive to um, positive events in the world? What happens to them? And so what they suggest is that some people are more likely than others to benefit from environmental support and enrichment. And the question that I think is being made is that because they take an evolutionary perspective rather than a societal perspective, they're really quite confused about how one would define what's positive and what's negative. And so a lot of the sort of things they look at are things like having a really irritable temperament or being hypersensitive, like overreacting to stimuli. And they, they actually show that this actually can be quite a good thing in certain contexts. And of course, that fits with what we know of evolutionary theory. The one thing you can be sure is that contexts are going to be changing. And you don't know when something that's a disadvantage in one situation might suddenly give you an edge in another situation. So rather than the diathesis stress model, these people have put forward a diathesis flourishing model. Those are my words, not theirs. And it's a differential openness to positive events. I want to know what you think of this, though. And if you have a read of it, please email me and tell me what you think. This is just one example. So they give the example of Roisman et al., who looked at children who had been rated at six or 12 months of age by their mothers, and they were rated as having really difficult temperaments, okay? And then they looked at those same kids at 11 years of age, and they found that the kids who had the really difficult temperaments were the ones who, if they had high quality parenting, were absolutely at the peak in terms of social and academic skills. And kids with less difficult temperaments hadn't actually benefited to the same degree from having that really, really high-quality parenting. And there's some lovely research that they cite about young girls who are extremely irritable and benefit massively from having their father being involved in their upbringing, whereas girls that, that aren't so irritable don't benefit so much from the father's involvement in rearing. So quite, quite interesting research, really. Okay. Thank you so much for your attention today. And let me know which bits you got and which bits you didn't. That was Lecture 32 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie Peterson. The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. 
Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. Mm-hmm.